0: Um, Turn to Matthew 19, will you please? I I had a counseling situation several years ago before I came to Idaho. It was absolutely one of the worst experiences of my entire life. Uh, I had a couple come come into my office, and they were arguing when they came in. And I I had them sit on opposite sides of the room. I I was afraid they were going to do something destructive to each other. And sure enough, in the course of the thing, you know, they were yelling at each other. I mean, it wasn't—they weren't raising their voices. It was absolute, certified yelling. They were standing on opposite sides of the room, shouting, and pretty soon they got closer until they were just nose to nose. And I thought, sure, they're going to start duking it out. And I—I I got into the middle of them and sort of separated them as gently as I could and told them to please sit down. And and they—they uh, they sat down and I said. Uh, how long has this been going on? So ever since we got married, and I said, "Well, uh, certainly you didn't get married with the intent of destroying each other." And I said, "Why did you get married?" And he looked at me and as though I was crazy. And he said, "Well, because we loved each other." And I think the irony of that of that statement struck all three of us at the same time. But uh, you know, it strikes me that that. That's true, right across the board. We never, we never start out to, to hurt each other. But we often end up not only hurting each other, but hating each other after a while. It's an odd sort of thing. How can it be? Certainly that's not our intention, but it so often happens. And what we're trying to do in this series of studies is, is make things better for you. Show you how you can heal your marriage. And repair the damage that's done in the past and, and learn uh, to not hurt each other in the future. We're working toward the goal of oneness, not merely togetherness, but the oneness that, that God has created. And I know for some of you this has been a painful process because you have divorces in your background or you're in the middle of a hurting marriage and uh, it's just been difficult. Like I, I know of one or two people who have said that they're just, for the next couple of weeks, they're going to drop out. They just can't stand the pressure. I, I want to say there, there is hope, there is help, and particularly today I want to assure you that we're going to talk about what happens if you've got uh, a, 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 the wreckage of a marriage in, in the past. Uh, there is a way out. We want to be constructive and redemptive and positive. So just uh, stick with us. There's, there's help coming. Uh, Matthew 19 is, a, is an interesting chapter. It's another of these commentaries. On the Genesis account of of creation and the creation of marriage. Uh, As I said before, there are two such accounts in the New Testament. There is Paul's commentary in Ephesians uh, 5, and then there is Jesus' commentary in Matthew 19. Let's begin reading with verse 1, where Matthew gives us the setting of this discourse. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. He was uh, off to the east of the Jordan River in, in what really was the boondocks of Canaan at that time, Palestine at that time, and away from official uh, Judaism, which was centered in Jerusalem. But uh, the the, official, uh, the officialdom of, of Israel never left Jesus alone. They were always harassing him. And they sent some Pharisees over this uh, strict sect of the Jews. And uh, they came to test him. They had him targeted. They wanted to destroy his credibility with, with the crowd. Matthew tells us some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's a good question on the face of it. It's the sort of question we're asking ourselves now as Christians. Is there any cause for divorce and remarriage? Now, there's a basic assumption that underlies this whole discussion, and we have to realize that. Otherwise, many of the statements don't make any sense. It was assumed in the ancient world that if you were divorced, you remarried. The the, the notion of, of remaining single just didn't enter their minds. The, the idea of, of a single person living in an apartment and working uh, was simply not, it uh, wasn't feasible, it wasn't possible in those days. You had to be married. Even true of prostitutes, even prostitutes were married. Rarely did you find a single person. So when we talk about the issue of divorce, we're really talking about divorce and remarriage. And their question is, is it ever, uh, is it ever right to secure a divorce and then marry someone else? Now, that's a good question. And it's one that we as Christians have got to think through for ourselves because uh, the the incident of divorce is so high. I, I was thinking this past week of the five friends that I was closest to in college. Three of them are now divorced, and, and one of them for a period of time was separated from his wife. She was living on the West Coast, and he was living on the East Coast. So four out of five of my friends were either divorced or, or separated. Um... And that sort of thing, it's endemic in the church. You find it right across the board. Christian leaders that are leaving their wives. Some that are, that are extremely well-known, leaving their wives and, and marrying again. So the question is, is it right from a biblical standpoint? Is it ever justified? Can we do that sort of thing? Now, that's the question that they raised. But, of course, their, their uh, question was barbed. This, they, didn't, they weren't really looking for answers. They wanted to put Jesus on the spot. This is the sort of thing that chess players describe as a fork. No matter how you move your piece, you're going to you're going to move you're going to lose some piece on the board, and that's what that's what they knew was going to happen to Jesus. Well, let me explain why this is so. Uh, at this time, there were two rival rabbinic schools of of thinking on divorce. They centered around two rabbis. One was named Shemai, who was a very strict, uh, uh, rigorous. He he would admit to divorce under no uh, there's no reason for divorce and remarriage except adultery he based his teaching on Deuteronomy 24 a passage that we'll look at in a moment there's a phrase in there in the description of, of the divorce process if a man divorces his wife for some unseemliness he took that to mean some sexual misbehavior adultery basically and uh, Uh, Shemai said that divorce and remarriage, except for the cause of adultery, is invalid. Now, that was one school of thought. There was another school of thought that was much more lax, and it centered around a man by the name of Hillel, who's actually much better known than Shemai. Quite well known. His writings are found in the uh, uh, literature outside of of the New Testament. Uh, His teaching was that you could divorce your wife for any cause. He took the phrase unseemly to mean anything that's unwomanly. If she uh, shames you in public, you can divorce her. If she's an incompetent cook, she burns the bagels or whatever uh, out. And uh, uh, he represented a much uh, much more liberal school of, of thinking. If we can trust Josephus, who was the historian of this time, he tells us that uh, most of the Jews followed Hillel, and that's true to human nature. Most of us don't think through issues, we just take the easiest course and and most Jews at that time uh, accepted Hillel's uh, uh, decision on this matter, and this is what Jesus was confronted with. The, the Pharisees knew very well that if he if he made a pronouncement on this issue, he would divide the crowd. He was going to alienate somebody. He was going to lose some people, no matter what he said. That's why Matthew says he came to. Uh, they came to test him. Is it lawful from a uh, Jewish standpoint, would Moses grant that it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, Jesus' response is very interesting. His reply is not a reply, actually. It's a question. He just raises another question. The the Lord's teaching methodology is is just so intriguing to me. He was so cagey. he, He just was so wise and shrewd in the way he approached these things. He would not let them corner him. He, he asks them a question. He turns the thing around and he puts them on the, on the end of the of the skewer. And he says, all right, "Let me let me ask you something. Haven't you read the Old Testament?" That's an odd sort of thing to say to people who were the best read uh, biblical scholars of their day. They added up all the words and letters, and, and even if if you read a critical uh, Hebrew text of that day, they have a a number at the bottom of every page, which is a kind of like a batch total. It's a listing of all of the, uh, uh, the, the letters and words and so they could keep track of everything and not lose any, any word or letter in, in the scriptures. They were very well read. But Jesus' point is they hadn't really read the scriptures. They hadn't read with understanding. Haven't you read, he said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, And said, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You'll recognize he's quoting the Genesis two passage that uh, that we've been looking at. Uh, You'll notice that the Lord goes back to the authority of the Old Testament. He always did in his controversies. That's where he centered his argument. He believed in the authority of the Scriptures. And that, of course, is the position we have to take. We're not at liberty to challenge Jesus' view of Scripture. He took it very seriously. The words, the letters, the whole thing he saw came from God. And as a matter of fact, you'll notice uh, how he puts uh, his argument The Creator made them male and female, and the Creator said what appears to be Moses' commentary in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave mother and father and cleave to his wife. In other words, this is God speaking. This isn't Moses alone. Moses' personality is in use, but it's God who's speaking who, through the instrument of Moses. So this is, this is God's word on this subject. And he says two things, basically. God made us male and female. In other words, there's a difference between the sexes. I hope you appreciate that. Uh, if you don't know that, you may have a real problem. <laughs> there is a difference. And it's a difference that shows up very early in life. I heard a story about two little boys that were discussing their ages. And one little boy says to the other, how old are you? And he says, well, I don't know. He says, I'm either four or five. First little boy says, do you like girls? He says, no. He says, you're four. (coughs) (laughs) There's a difference in the sexes, but he's saying more than that. He's really going back to the Genesis story and he's saying, do you remember... That God created one man and one woman. There's a special woman that came out of Adam's ribcage and was given to him as a special gift. And for this reason, God said, a man shall leave mother and father and cleave to his wife. You see that? One man and one woman. That's God's intention. He not only created one man and one woman, but he created the institution of, of marriage. It came from above. It's not some legal, social contract merely certainly it involves that but it's far more than that it's it's a covenant with god and and he does something you know he he, there's some magic that he works upon the the couple to to make them one the two become one they come from two different social units two sets of parents and they form a new social unit god creates an indivisible unity there something god does now that teaches me two or three things. One, we we, we never should fall prey to this uh, tendency to make jokes about marriage. It's sort of like sex, you know. Some of the funniest jokes are based on on sexual matters. But but Paul says, don't don't jest about sex. That's a high and holy thing. Don't poke fun at it. It came from above. The same thing is true of marriage. You know, all this bad humor about meet my ball and chain and stuff like that, that simply should not be a part of our thinking as Christians because it's an institution that God has, has created. It's a high and holy thing. You ought to treat it uh, tenderly and with, uh, with great respect. The second thing this passage teaches us on the authority of, of Jesus and his teaching is that uh, polygamy is not an option for any of us if you were thinking along those lines, it uh, certainly isn't for me. I, I came home once and asked Carolyn what she would think if I brought home another wife. And uh, she said, well, you wouldn't be a polygamist very long. <laughs> I said, what would I be? And she said, dead. <coughs> that's not a, that's not a, that's obviously not an option. God did not create Adam and Eve and Alice and Sarah and So he created Adam and Eve, one man and one woman, together for life. Now, this raises the question of polygamy in the Old Testament, and I don't want to take time to talk about that except to say that this is simply one of those things that uh, God, uh, to to use Luke's phrase in Acts, winked at for a period of time. There were greater issues at stake. And anyway, polygamy was not practiced widely. It was mostly among the leadership of of the nation. We can talk about that tonight if you'd like in the question and answer session. But it clearly is not God's original intention. He put together one man and one woman for life. The second thing this obviates is so-called homosexual marriages. There is no such thing. He didn't create Adam and Sam. It's Adam and Eve. So, you know, it, unfortunately, uh, the gays have twisted and distorted Scripture to their own ruin. They, we ought to understand what what they're doing. It, God's instructions are, are best, and they're right, and they're redemptive, and they're productive. And when, when, we, when we distort Scripture, we always do so to our own peril. We destroy ourselves. And that's what God is trying to warn, uh, warn us away from, and our Lord here in this passage. What he says is that he created two sexes, and he created marriage. And what God has joined together, let man not, not separate. Two people leave. One leaves one set of parents, another another set of parents, and they're joined together into an indivisible unit. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now we need to understand what Jesus is saying. This is not a bit of advice that he gives us. This is not good counsel. He's not saying, well... You know, it would be better not to separate. This is a command from our Lord, and we're not at liberty to question it. If, if we accept his Lordship, what Jesus is saying is don't get a divorce. It's a command. It's not an option. It's a command. That's why I believe that it is wrong for Christians to get a divorce. It is always wrong for a Christian to initiate a divorce. It's sin. It's contrary to God's will for us. I don't see any other way to read this. Read this uh, statement. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not not separate. The Pharisees were preoccupied with divorce, and and unfortunately, that's the state of things today in the church. We're discussing, you know, under what conditions is it. Uh, legitimate to get a divorce. Jesus was preoccupied with staying together with reconciliation. That's why when when couples come into my office these days and, and say, I want to talk about divorce, my standard action is not, I'm not going to talk about divorce. You want to talk about a divorce, you go see a lawyer. But we're going to talk about reconciliation. Because I I just do not believe that it's ever God's will for a Christian to initiate a divorce. You may be the victim of a divorce, 1 Corinthians 7 says that sort of thing may happen to us. Brian's going to teach on that passage next week. But it's wrong for a Christian to initiate a divorce. Now, there may be reasons to separate for a period of time. I can see no reason why a woman has to endure physical beatings or or verbal assaults on her. And certainly, our children don't need to be subjected to that sort of thing. There may be grounds. I believe there are biblical grounds. For separation, and even for a legal separation for a period of time, but but the goal is to get back together again. There's always hope. There's always the possibility of the redemption of of a marriage. Paul says the same thing in First Corinthians seven. Precisely, again, I'll let uh, let Brian cover that material uh, next week. Now, the question then that the Pharisees raise is why then in verse seven. Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your heart's her heart. You notice what they thought was a command, Jesus said, is not a command at all. It's a concession. They, they had garbled a teaching in the Old Testament that we're going to look at at a moment in Deuteronomy 24. And they believed that Moses commanded divorce. He said, no, he, he didn't command divorce. It's a concession. It's a permission. Why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not so from the beginning. It wasn't God's intention. Now, let's go back to that passage. It's Deuteronomy 24. It's a very short passage. Very instructive. Uh, This is an example of what is called, uh, what uh, Old Testament scholars refer to as case law. There are two types of laws in the Old Testament. Some are absolute, the thou shalt nots. The others are are called case law, and normally they are introduced with this formula. If a certain thing is true, then something is true. And these laws uh, probably came from actual situations. Moses and his counselors sitting in judgment on the nation. Gave inspired uh, uh, decisions about these matters. And this is, uh, uh, it seems to me, the record of one of these decisions. It came out of an actual situation. And you'll notice it's a long conditional clause. If, 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 if a thing is true, then something is true. And the command doesn't actually come till you get to verse 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her. That's the word that the rabbis uh, debated, the meaning of that word indecent. It just means the nakedness of a thing, and, and no one knew for sure precisely what it means. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then, here's the command. Her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You see, the command is verse 4, you can't have her back. Now, let me say at the outset, this law is not binding upon the church. It's not an Old Testament law that's restated in the New Testament. The only thing that's applicable to us today is what is restated in the New Testament. This was for Israel, the theocracy. It was a special rule for them. But the principles obtained. What, what, what Moses is saying is you just can't treat a woman that way. She's not a football to be passed back and forth between two men. It's not that she's, you, you know, she's defiled in some way and you can't have her back. That'll defile you. The point is you've defiled her. You can't trifle with a woman's affection that way. You can't exploit her. You can't toss her around like that. She's precious. But you can't have her back. And what that would do is put the brakes on some man who was thinking that he'd just throw her away and then take her back at some future point. Moses says, you can't do that. Now, the command is not to divorce. Do you see that? Moses says, if you get a divorce for any conceivable reason, then you can't have your wife back because you can't treat women that way. Now, they had made that an absolute command. And uh, they were preoccupied with doing the whole thing uh, legally and giving the right kind of certificate of divorce and paying enough money so they can live. but, But Jesus says, you've missed the whole point. That provision in the Old Testament was a concession because of the hardness of your heart. And that's why people get a divorce. Somebody's heart's heart. It's just that simple. They're not willing to submit to the other person. Remember Ephesians 5, submitting yourselves to one another. The, the husband is to give up himself for his wife as Christ does for his bride. The wife is to give in to the husband and submit to his leadership as we do to our to our Lord. Everyone is subject to, to everyone else. That's the point. Submission is not something that's, uh, that's unworthy of us. It's the highest possible call. Our Lord himself set the way by being subject to the Father and by giving himself up for us. Proverbs says, only by pride comes contention. If you want to know what causes distress in your marriage and conflict, it's pride. And what resolves that conflict is a soft heart. Uh, There is some magic that God works on us when we say, I do. Jesus said that's so, that we become one. We are one right there. But... uh, just as in sanctification we are said to be mature and perfect in Christ, we have to work toward that goal of perfection and maturity. So in our marriage we work toward that goal of oneness, not togetherness. Some marriage togetherness is like the togetherness you feel in, a, in, in, a, in an elevator. You know how uncomfortable that is when you're kind of squeezed in there and you can't get out. But that, that's, not, that's not the goal. It's oneness. It's becoming One. And the whole question is, am I willing to give away my rights in order to become one? Does this action of mine contribute toward oneness or does it destroy our oneness? And if we're not willing to contribute toward that, that goal of oneness, then we've got a hard heart. We're standing on our own, our own rights, demanding that everybody give in to me and please me and, and serve me and sacrifice for my sake. And that's what causes divorce. It's just that simple. It's hard hearts. And Jesus said so. Now he, he finally answers their question. It took him a while because he had other things that were more important. He, their, their preoccupation was with divorce and what, how you do it legally, and his preoccupation was with reconciliation and sticking together, cleaving, clinging to one another no matter what. Let me read verse 8 again. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. Jesus never pulled his punches. That's why he wasn't too popular. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And that's Jesus' cause for divorce and remarriage. Remember their question, is there any cause any reason, any just legal reason for divorce and remarriage? And I think this is, this is Jesus' teaching on the subject. This is his final word. There's one cause. And it's marital unfaithfulness. That's what destroys a marriage. Not irreparably. You can go back and rebuild it. You don't have to cast the person away because they've been unfaithful. But if the person determines to form another sexual union and they they pursue that, then there's nothing you can do because the marriage is broken, according to Jesus. Now, there are a couple of questions that we have to raise about this passage because this is a tough one. One is the, the, the issue of the authenticity of this phrase in Matthew because it doesn't occur in the parallel accounts in in, in Mark and in Luke. Uh, for some reason, the, the writers of those Gospels didn't didn't use this exclusion clause, didn't report it, but it's here. And some scholars have said, well, this was a later edition by some scribe. But all of the earliest manuscripts, all of the best manuscripts that we have, include this phrase. So it's it's... Obviously, an authentic writing of Matthew, it records an actual teaching of, of Jesus, and is trustworthy. This is the exclusion clause that he admits. It's left out of the other gospel accounts, I believe, because it was taken for granted. They knew that. I mean, after all, in the Old Testament, if you were unfaithful, they stoned you, and that was the end of the marriage. You know? I mean, that frees you up. Now, the death penalty was not in effect at this time, but, but they, they knew. Jews knew. That this was the death knell of, of marriage. This, this put an end to it. And the second question is what Jesus means by, by marital unfaithfulness. That's the way the NIV translates it. Some, some translations translate on chastity or unfaithfulness or uh, fornication. It is the word that's normally translated fornication in the New Testament. Pornea. Uh, the, the, the word originally came from, from a root. Uh, pornumi, it means to buy or sell, and it was used of prostitutes. It, it's used of of, of uh, illicit sexual activity between uh, between unmarried people, generally. In contrast to another word, our, our word adultery, that is sexual misbehavior between married people, or at least where one or the other is, is married. But it's also the comprehensive word for... For illegal or illicit sexual activity of any kind, it's used of incest in 1 Corinthians five. It's used of homosexual activity. It's used of adultery in, in the in the Old Testament. In the Greek translations of the Old Testament, it's the term it's used of Gomer, who was Hosea's unfaithful wife. So it's the big word. For all kinds of, of sex outside of marriage. That that's that's the context of sex, according to the Bible. the marriage, where one man and one woman are committed together for life. But outside of that, the word pornumi, or "porneo" was used. That's the comprehensive word for any sort of sexual unfaithfulness to one's mate. And Jesus says, that's it. That's what destroys the marriage. Where that has occurred. Where an individual forms a sexual union and then goes off and and leaves the person Then that That annuls the marriage relationship, which teaches us how devastating extramarital affairs are. Would you believe that people, counselors, are still counseling couples to have an affair because that will add spice to their life? I'm still reading that sort of thing. It is not... A small thing. It's not some piccadillo. It's not just a piddling thing. It, it, it's the one thing that destroys God's creative handiwork. It's like that fellow that took the uh, sledgehammer to the Pieta in, in the Vatican several years ago and smashed that beautiful piece of, of art. It's just an absurd sort of thing to do. And, and God says that's exactly what sexual misconduct does. It destroys the union. It's not a small thing. It's a very big thing. And he says it is, in fact, the only the only thing that destroys it to the extent that the marriage no longer exists and, and remarriage can occur. Uh, John Stott's summary of this uh, passage, uh, let me quote it, to the general principle of an inviolable marriage union. As Jesus said, this is the way it was from the beginning. There is one exception. The only situation in which divorce and remarriage are possible without breaking the seventh uh, commandment is when it is already broken by some serious sexual sin. In this case, and in this case only, Jesus seems to have taught that divorce was permissible, or at least that it could be obtained without the innocent uh, partner contracting the, the further stigma of adultery. The modern tendency of Western countries to frame legislation for divorce on the basis rather of irretrievable breakdown or death of a marriage rather than that of sexual offense cannot be said to be compatible with the teachings of Jesus. And to this, I'd have to add the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. He seems to indicate that abandonment also constitutes grounds for divorce and remarriage. Brian, we'll talk about that next week. But for myself, I think that question is moot because any unbelieving partner who uh, who deserts a believing partner is is almost certainly somewhere along the line to be unfaithful so that the marriage is broken in any, any case. I... You, but we cannot leave the matter there. We have to realize this is Jesus' reluctant permission. He's saying this is one ground for divorce and, and remarriage. And as a matter of fact, this is the only ground for divorce and remarriage. But but don't, don't leave it there. Our Lord says this is not God's intention from the beginning. It's one woman and one man together for life, no matter what. And if your wife or your husband has been unfaithful, there can always be restoration and and forgiveness, and the marriage can be redeemed. Any marriage can. Hosea is the classic example. Gomer was unfaithful to him repeatedly, ended up in a a temple as a sacred prostitute, and Hosea got her, fetched her back home, loved her back into submission. And God says, "That's, that's the way I am with Israel. How can I give you up, O Israel, he says in Hosea. He goes after her, brings her back. Doesn't have to destroy the marriage. And now the question is, what, what do you do when you have a divorce in your background and, and perhaps you've, you've been divorced and remarried on the wrong basis? What, what do you do? Is this the end? Are you set aside forever? Uh, the, the effect on divorcees is just devastating, particularly in terms of, of service. If you've ever been in a, if you've ever played uh, sports, been involved in athletics, you know, how humiliating it is to be removed from the game for a miscue. You know, you you uh, bobble a ground ball and three runs score, and, and the coach comes racing out of the dugout, and and you're sent to the showers, and everybody in the stands knows that you miscued. And and that's the way a lot of people feel about their marriages. You know, they, they bobble the ball. They look between their legs, and, and their marriage is going out into center field, and and, and the coach comes out and you envision God as a, a red-headed, uh, high-tempered uh, coach. And he comes out and yells at you and says, all right, that's it. On the bench. You're through. You're finished. You've bobbled your one chance in life. It's over. And the whole world knows it. And they stand there and look at you and, and you, you feel the shame and the humiliation of it. And you just want to die. You want to crawl under a rock someplace and, and die. But God wants you to know there's a way back. Uh, it, it may be that you are now married out of God's will, but God doesn't want you to go back and break up the marriage that you that you currently have and try to restore a relationship with someone who's back there in the past. That's over. It's done. If you're unmarried and your former spouse is unmarried, then I would say the first step is to try to effect a reconciliation. But if you've married again, make... This marriage, the focus of your attention. Give yourself, uh, become a one, one woman kind of man, with the woman that you now have. Love her, and protect her, and uh, be the kind of man that, uh, that God wants you to be there, or, or the kind of woman. And and if you are divorced, and uh, there is the possibility of remarriage, your 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 mate has committed adultery and. And the relationship now is broken, and there's the possibility of of remarriage. Then, then that may well be God's will for you. There are some some exceptions, some provisions that God makes. That, again, that Brian will talk about next week. But that may well be God's God's will, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians seven: If you marry, only marry in the Lord. Uh, the The problem, I think, with so many people that have been divorced is that they are just devastated. And they're so vulnerable to uh, tall, dark, and handsome men and beautiful women that come into their life who may not have the the spiritual qualifications to give them the kind of marriage that they're looking for, but they quickly transfer their affections from the old relationship to the new because they have so many unmet needs. If you're going to marry, marry in the Lord. Be sure that it's a godly man who will give you the kind of relationship that, that you're looking for, who can fulfill you as Christ fulfills his his bride. That's the only way to do it. And the thing that, that we need to remember is that what, what sets our own hearts right and what makes it possible for For God to work in power in our marriages is a real spirit of repentance. By repentance, we're not talking about some kind of emotional sorrow over the past because you may not have too many emotions left, but it's a change of mind about the past. The sort of things that contributed to the destruction of the first marriage can contribute to the destruction of the second marriage if they're not repented of. Statistically, Twice as many second marriages break up as, as first marriages because people just drag all their problems right into that, into that relationship. And what we need to do is, is repent, genuinely repent of the past, and by God's grace begin to grow and become what, what he wants us to become. And if, if you are divorced, God still has a place of service you in in his kingdom. I think one of Satan's uh, favorite tricks is to make you feel disqualified and uh, to believe that you have no place in the kingdom of God. Have any of you seen recently a Scofield Bible? Are you you familiar with that particular Bible? I was raised on that thing. I grew up in Scofield Memorial Church and everyone had a Schofield Bible. Are you aware of the fact that C.I. Schofield was not only an alcoholic, but also a divorcee? He was at one time in his life the Attorney General of the state of Kansas. And he uh, he, he was an alcoholic. He destroyed his himself uh, physically and lost his uh, job as a result. His wife left him and he was divorced. And she later uh, remarried. And he later remarried. And he became a man that God used greatly. No one knows the, the number of people that have been affected by the ministry of that man, Dr. C.S. Schofield. And the same can be true of you. The, the real issue is what are we going to do about the marriage we have? If there's a possibility of reconstructing the former relationship, then by all means, try. But But if that's an impossibility, focus on the one you have. Work toward unity. Ask God to give you a a soft heart, so that you can fulfill all the desires of your heart in your present marriage. Let's pray. <clears throat> Perhaps you would like, in the quietness of your own heart, to make some commitment to, to the Lord regarding your marriage. Perhaps it's the... Uh, Hard decision to uh, to cut off a relationship that you know is wrong, spiritually unhealthy, or perhaps it means going back and trying to reconcile with someone who uh, who has deeply wronged you, or perhaps it's a commitment to your present marriage. to uh, uh, to simply refuse to give up. Would you tell God that you're willing to do it His way and thank Him for the grace that makes it possible? Father, we thank You for giving us what we need for all of life. Thank You for the the strength and the the will that comes from you that you're at work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure and we know that that what is is pleasing to you is that is that we that our marriages become an illustration of Christ's love for his bride and our love for our Lord and we know that that's possible we thank you that there's hope that when when everything else has faded There is still faith and hope and love. That these remain. We believe you. We trust you to that end. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.